The uh, sun does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. I'm delighted to be here. These are historic times in Appalachia. A lot has changed, a lot is changing now, and a lot still needs to change. In our podcast, we talk with changemakers right square in the middle of all this, working to ensure the change is for the good. You're listening to Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison. This is Change in the Coalfields. My name is Brandon Dennison, the founder and CEO of Coalfield Development, which hosts this podcast. And we are joined today by the Deputy Director of the Cassiopeia Foundation and the Managing Director of its subsidiary, Purple Tiger, someone I've known for a lot of years and have uh, always really admired what you do and how you do it, Stephanie Randolph. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having me today. I've been listening to the podcast and um, am honored to be included as one of your guests. Well, honored to have you join and and, and happy for our guests to, to hear your story and to Hear your thoughts on change uh, here in Appalachia and, and in the coal fields. So um, I'd love to just go back to the beginning, actually. So you're now a, a major leader in Appalachia, have been for a long time in impact investing more generally. Um, but how did it all start? Where did you grow up? <laughs> Outside of Appalachia. Um, <laughs> I was actually born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. So Appalachia to me was that drive two hours away that I would go for um, a nice hike um, or a weekend getaway. Um, That was my early experience. But my husband and I um, moved to West Virginia um, around 2001, um, looking for something different, um, wanting a different pace of life, um, and implanted ourselves on the border of Braxton and Webster County. Um, And, you know, learned that while I may have been college educated, there was a lot I did not know. Um, and I may have grown up around Appalachia, um, but there were a lot of holes in, in what I had come to believe. So you, so literally you, you and your husband just wanted a change and, uh, did you like spin a map around and put your finger or what? Like- <laughs> he, he actually, um, in college had a, he would always talk, talk about, wanting to go kind of live off the land, um, I kind of back to the lander vision and um, getting out of the suburban neighborhoods that we grew up in. Um, and a friend of his finally said, you know, you think you want this, why don't you go visit my uncle? Um, and so he went off for a weekend to visit his uncle who um, lives in Braxton County and he had a fantastic time. And as he was getting ready to leave, the uncle said, Hey, you're welcome back anytime you want with or without the nephew. Um, and he kept going back without the nephew. Mm. Um, and I would say it was probably four or five years before he took me with him um, so that I could actually, you know, begin to see what he was loving about West Virginia. Um, and coincidentally, um, a house across the ridge, but on the same road, um, as the friends that we had there, um, became available on 152 acres, um, for $200 a month. Um, wow. no guarantee. It was on the top of like a three quarters of a mile hill up the driveway. There was no guarantee of water access or road access as a part of that $200 a month. Um, we're like, well, Take we, it can or leave a, it. <laughs> we can make a switch on $200 a month. We can go figure this out. Um, 
So in our, you know, late twenties, we packed up out of Cincinnati, rented a U-Haul and um, moved to the top of the mountain. Amazing. It's especially amazing. I mean, we're, we're a state typically known for losing population. So you've contributed to an increase in the population. We did for just over a decade. Um, and I loved it, but it's also hard, a hard place to be a transplant. You yeah. stand out a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's pluses and minuses there. So say a little bit more about that. The, the Appalachian hospitality is the first thing everyone notices. Mm. Um, everyone will greet you with a with a hello. You can't drive down a dirt road without somebody and everybody waving to you and having the expectation to wave back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I once had a flat tire, and you know, as I was fixing it, three people stopped to try to help me. Yeah. Um, those are all wonderful things, but they're also a tad bit skeptical of outsiders. Um, a lot of times, you know. In particular, college-educated people will come in with these big ideas um, and don't take the time to root themselves in the community. Um, And that kind of doing something to us rather than for us approach um, or not taking the time to build the community will. And I mean, I think that's just a part of the history of the extract, the impact of the extractive history on the region that outsiders are, you know, welcomed um, and watched. Welcomed and watched. That's that's a very that sort of succinctly captures a an irony of Appalachia, perhaps. But again, I really do think it has to do with the history. Hmm. Um, that so much that has happened to the region has been done to it, not with it or for it, or that there were deceiving or only partial stories that were shared to enlist the support um, of those who were living on living there historically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me go. I want to hear more about um, your, your decade plus in, in West Virginia, but I also, you know, I I've worked with you. I've seen your work. You care about justice. You care about fairness. You care about opportunity. What was in the water there in Cincinnati that got you so committed to these types of causes? And this will probably explain why I ended up in philanthropy. <laughs> My, I mean, I I was an upper middle class suburban kid um, who, you know, never wanted anything that I didn't need um, or didn't get. Um, so I had a very privileged background. My parents were um, always supportive of whatever crazy idea I had. I've had the chance as a young kid to travel the world. But my mom was a working mom who changed jobs from being a reading specialist um, at a Catholic school to becoming a reading specialist at an inner city high school when I was in fifth grade Hmm. in Cincinnati. And that I have older brothers and sisters. And so as my older brothers and sisters were entering high school and kind of beginning that college preparatory process, my mom was teaching high school students how to read. And how to read books that I had already read and I was in fifth grade. And I began to recognize the disparities that existed across race and across income. Um, And then my mom, as my sister was moving through her college process, began to realize that there's no one in that high school that was helping students who had the ability to go to college to even think about it. There was no one in that high school making sure that they took four years of math or four years of English. They were more concerned about health and safety issues um, of those students. And they wrote a grant to the Carnegie Foundation 
um, to basically create a second program in the school that paralleled what the guidance counselors did to help identify students in their freshman year that had the potential to go to college that helped them work on their scheduling to make sure that they were leading a college preparatory process. They augmented the English classes in 10th and 11th grade with the equivalent of the SAT, ACT preparation that my parents paid for, for me and my siblings, um, so that they had a more competitive opportunity to go to college. And when it came time for the application process, they were paired um, with somebody to help them with their essays. They brought in um, support to deal with the FAFSAs and help explain to families what the what the FAFSAs were and, and how these loans, Pell Grants, how all of that would play out and affect them um, to create a pipeline of college students from this high school. Mm. Um, and it was all done by a grant. Um, and then volunteers. That from, was your first exposure to the, the power of what philanthropy can do. Well, and also the, the power of philanthropy, but also the, the my mom's work in that high school, the, the disparities that began to exist that had always existed. But to me, as a fifth grader coming from suburban Cincinnati, walking into a high school that was 90 percent black was among the most startling experiences I had ever had, because that was not what the community that I saw. And hearing stories of what students were going through was not the experience I was having. And I began to realize that that tale of two cities, um, you know, was really what was existing in Cincinnati um, and was, you know, in all of what my mother was trying to do. So are you a Reds fan? I am a Reds fan and a Bengals fan, which is a bit of a tough thing to hold. I'm thrilled the Bengals have... About last year, but it, yes, it was like I, the first a, time in my life that the Bengals were like in the <laughs> in the conversation. Well, I, I've been around twice for both. I've been around for both super, previous Super Bowls, um, so I was very excited by that. But I'm a Reds fan. I'm a Bengals fan. I'm also an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, and I'm a Bearcat as well. So okay. um, I try to keep up on what's going on in Ohio. But it's not often we have something to celebrate sports us. <laughs> So um, did you go to college yourself? Yes, I went to the University of Cincinnati and then I went off to graduate school in Los Angeles. Okay, what was Los Angeles like? Los Angeles as a 20 something that had no concept of finances um, (laughs) from the Midwest was a great experience. (laughs) Um, You know, I lived two blocks off of the Sunset Strip um, and it was a hoot. say the least um but every day i realize this is fantastic the weather's better than you know i can imagine but i'm a midwesterner um there was so much going on all of the time um that i'd have to escape to some hiking trail just to like kind of decompress and breathe um but it's a fun place to be in your 20 somethings a lot of bars a lot of great music um and if you're not really paying attention to the credit card debt um get out of hand quickly it, it was a lot of fun. I never knew that about you. And what were you, what was your um, graduate degree in? Ah, this is what you really don't know about me. Right. Um, this is why you like doing this show. Exactly. Um, I went to graduate school to become a rabbi. Um, I completed four years um, of a five-year program and walked away with a master's in arts and Hebrew letters and a master's in communal service, which is nonprofit management with a kind of focus on how Jewish institutions have been shaped and formed and evolved over time. 
That is utterly fascinating. Did not know. And super cool. Um, I think the background, I clearly don't use the Hebrew skills, um, but the background shows up in how I hold mission and vision. Kind of what's the big picture? What are we working towards in how I work? But also the mission of how do, what's the nitty gritty? What is, what's the nuts and bolts? What do we need to do to get there? Um, I think that's the most important traits I took away from that time. Is, um, is the Jewish tradition, is that a inspirational, has that been significant in shaping who you are? It, it was significant in shaping who I was as a younger person. Right. Um, it was my community. It was my grounding um, through high school and college. Um, when I moved to graduate school, though, the academic nature of it mm. um, overwhelmed the spiritual nature. Yeah. And that's really when the call to the mountains started for me. Um, yeah. That, you know, where I may have found the routine of prayer helpful and grounding. I all of a sudden was analyzing what was going on, why, what was the history, what are the alternative versions of this methodology to go through. And it um, kind of rattled that for me. So I had to go and figure out new sources of balance. Reground. Yeah. What a fascinating background. And then you came back to Cincinnati, it sounds like, and settled down. Came back, went back to Cincinnati, um, kind of transitioning out of the Jewish community um, into what was next. Um, reconnected with my husband who I dated in college. Um, and after a couple of years, we decided to pack up and, um, move to West Virginia. What'd you do? How'd you spend your time in West Virginia? <laughs> where to, where to begin? Not, did you, how'd you get water? <laughs> <laughs> how do we get water? Well, again, sometimes it worked. Sometimes you had to like go down the, all the way down to the bottom, um, to the watershed and manually hold the pump button open so that it could fill up at the top. And other times you just kind of lug water up. Wow. <laughs> comes the other option. Um, you know, West Virginia was a great experience. Um, you know, I started off do, doing kind of independent contracting. I had experience doing grant rating. I understood organizational management. And, you know, even today, anybody who can write a grant, anybody who can read directions and write a grant um, can find a job in West Virginia. Um, and so I was doing some independent consulting doing grant writing. Um, I helped the Sutton Library seek some grants. I helped with the Braxton County Animal Shelter at one point in time. Um, as they were getting started, I then did some work for Mountaineer Food Bank, um, as well as the Economic Development Authority in Braxton and Webster. Did I ever do work? Not Braxton, just Webster. Um, and that's when all of a sudden the head of the Economic Development Authority in Webster is like, Mary Hunt, of all people, thinks we should start a community foundation. Um, this was about 2002, 2003. Okay. It's like, do you know anything about foundations? <laughs> it's like, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> um, and that began my journey into um, philanthropy as a full-time career. Incredible. So you helped to establish a, a brand new foundation? In Webster County, we created an area fund embedded in the Beckley Area Foundation. So it's called the Webster County Community Fund okay. that's within the Beckley Area Foundation. 
Um, and then I moved over to Nicholas County, who was in the process of, of filling out the legal documentation to become a freestanding community foundation and became their first executive director. How did you, would you have like 20, 30 staff underneath you? <laughs> no, it was me and my boards. <laughs> <laughs> Volunteer boards, I presume. Um, they, they were fantastic. And, you know, it was in, in Webster, our first grant um, was actually, we received a challenge grant that was a result of a Ford Foundation investment into the broader region, along with Mary Reynolds Babcock. Hmm. And basically they said, if we can raise $25,000 for our endowment, meaning our permanent dollars that we will keep, they would give us $25,000. And it may have been 15 and 15. Um, they would give us that same amount so that we could immediately do grant making in the community and show people what this was like and what this could do. Um, so to be in Webster County and raise that fifteen dollars or $25,000 was um, a significant amount of money. Um, for a new idea that, you know, creating a savings account for the community, trying to teach people what that was about and why we should do it. Um, but then equally as interesting was, how do you distribute $15,000 in a community like that? So uh, I was just going to add, like, how do you establish, where do you start? From a grant making perspective? Yeah. Well, I, again, I think that's where, you know, where the community comes into play. Um, we there were say 15 to 20 people in the community who were helping try to create this community fund um and I, we identified some specific areas of interest health being one um children um arts and culture being another and then kind of recreation and set up the categories and said let's see what comes in we would sort the grant applications into categories and then try to determine you know which ones stood out as the best. And so some of the grants were supporting the back to school fairs where we would buy school supplies for kids before the first day of school. They did a grant um, for a walking track and for a community that didn't have really safe roads for people to walk on and you know, in attempts to not just create a safer space for people, but to create a place where people could congregate and walk together um to increase the health and fitness within the community um there were grants made to holly river state park um as well um so it was it was kind of like that first chance of when you see how deep the need is how do you spread that wealth um but after a few cycles of that i began to really wrestle with we're never going to have enough money to meet the need and what do you do then and working within the Economic Development Authority office, you know, chasing down whatever grants were coming from the West Virginia Development Office, whatever grants were coming down from ARC, just really started getting frustrated with there's never going to be enough grant dollars yeah. um, to make this happen. Or, you know, having to write the grants. I won't name the foundation. When I worked at Mountaineer Food Bank, there was they had a very large electric bill uh, because they have a large, a, a lot of freezers and refrigerators to help preserve the food. Uh, and a national foundation that's interested in food access um, would not do general operating grants. But what the food bank really needed was capital to pay this excessively large um, gas and electric bill. 
And so in having a conversation with the program officer who says, no, 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 we don't do, you know, we're not going to pay your electric bill. We're not going to, you know, or we're not going to, we're not going to pay your electric bill. We're not going to pay general operating. Like, well, would you support the storage and preservation of food? (laughs) You know, could you look at it from a health and safety perspective? Oh yes, we could do that. (laughs) <laughs> you got to give them the language they want sometimes, don't you? Uh, and again, those those moments as a grant writer have helped me kind of, as somebody who's now on the other side, begin to you know, really wrestle with what's the real need and are our requirements um, helping or hurting what's happening in communities? Um, they're funny stories, but for sure. But it, it's an important question that I don't think we ask often enough because in the under invested communities, community leaders are chasing grants and they're setting their community priorities often based on the funding streams, not the voices of the people. Um, and, you know, I think philanthropy is starting to change, um, but it's as much a source of the divisiveness and competitiveness that rural communities face with one another mm. as anything. So that's a rich point. Two two follow-ups there. The first, why, how did it, and this might not even be a fair question, how did it get to be this way? How did philanthropy become so top-down and unresponsive to what people in distressed communities are actually saying they need and want? Well, philanthropy is top-heavy, historically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And I'm going to separate philanthropy for a little while from the state and federal streams. Um, But philanthropy was created as a tax shelter, first and foremost. Um, That's the origin of those dollars. And as a wealthy person who has the opportunity to receive a tax deduction, but yet still maintain influence over the allocation of those dollars, that's a remarkable win. Um, Not to mention that those dollars that you have the influence over, you can equate with power um, and it grants you access. Um, So I think that's how the model was set up (laughs) from the very start that the rich people have the money and, you know, therefore they're the ones that have the decision-making power. Um, It's starting to change um, and it's changing in all different kinds of ways. But I think the origin was somebody has the money, we'll give you, a tax deduction, and this is a gross simplification of history, um, but yet you still have influence. And basically, you within some very broad parameters, you, the rich person who started this foundation, can do whatever you want with it. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so that that's the was the structure. Um, and you know, large foundations today, um, especially the, and this is different from place based foundations. Um, you know. They don't have the staff to get on the ground and understand what makes what's happening in rural West Virginia different than what's happening in rural Iowa. Um, you know, they're lucky. We're lucky when they get on the ground to come to West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky um, to really try to understand what's going on. Um, and, you know, the boards similarly um, are not engaged or in touch with what's happening on the ground. I mean, if you're trying to deploy, you know, millions or billions of dollars you have to do that at a scale that intent unintentionally excludes so many people from it because they can't do small grants uh, which is often what's needed in rural communities 
Um, they've got to deploy it at a scale that they have the staffing capacity to meet. You mentioned earlier, just for listeners who maybe aren't as steeped in grants, could you say a little bit about the difference between a general operating grant and a project grant? Why that's so important? Sure. Um, a general operating grant is um, basically a grant to the organization, and it is allowing the organization to have free will over how they use their funds, so long as it is still being used to meet the charitable mission of that nonprofit organization who's receiving those dollars. A project grant is um, generally very clearly defined in a grant application to serve a particular purpose over a specific period of time. It often requires a budget to say, and this is how I'm gonna spend the money with somewhere between five and if you're lucky 15% variance ability to change. And then a set timeline where you're supposed to do what you said you were going to do, how you said you were going to do it with just a little bit of room for iteration and variation or learning and adaptation along the way. So normal business, you know, you got payroll, you've got utility bills, you've got insurance costs, you might have to pay rent, supplies and travel. And, you know, if it's a project grant, though, all of that may or may not be allowable. Correct. And in a project grant, oftentimes what you'll see is a line item at the bottom of it that'll allow for 10, maybe 15% overhead mm. um, to help pay, you know, maybe doing a project that's related to the delivery of fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and so it may be compensating for some transportation. It may be the project grant may address some, some transportation costs. It may address some of the purchase of food. Um, and it may even pay for the person who's reaching out to figure out which communities need which pieces, what quantities of food. But is it paying for the accountant behind the scenes who's keeping track of things? Is it paying for the building? Is it paying for their office? Is it paying for their com computer? Um, is it paying for their benefits? Um, those are often the things that are um, hamstrung in a project grant, which is in general, but not consistently, philanthropy's most comfortable tool. And just as an FYI, I mean, mo federal grants are a bit of a different animal, and we won't go down that rabbit trail, but they tend to be much more like the program than the general operating in almost every case. Correct. Two more questions on your time in West Virginia, and then um, we'll move to, the, I want to move to the next chapter of your life. Um, you mentioned the library in Sutton and something about that. I, I've got a lot of family roots on my dad's side in Braxton County. Um, when I say Sutton Library, I'm just curious what pops to mind. Cafe Samino. Yep, right down the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's either the Elk River um, or Cafe Samino. Um, it's a beautiful building. Um, you know, it was actually where I would have to go to get internet access um, when we first moved. You know, there wasn't any internet access up on the mountain that I described. Um, and so I would go into Sutton and I had like, I could sign up and have an hour of free computer usage. Um, so that's where I went to um, check my email, um, order things off Amazon and reconnect <laughs> with the world. How about if I say Elk River, what pops to mind? Where my daughter learned to swim. Wow. In Webster, not Sutton, but um, she learned to swim in the Elk. Beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, a beautiful. My Favorite thing to do when I go back to West Virginia, if it's warm enough. Swim in the elk? Yeah, if it's warm enough. And I, I hate to 
break people's hearts, but the famous chemical spill in Charleston was straight into the Elk River, which is typically known as a very clean, one of the few very clean rivers in the state, you know, that we have left. Yeah. And Webster, um, our house in Webster was a couple hundred feet above the Elk, is far, is near the headwaters of the Elk. So we were very lucky to have fantastic water. That's awesome. Uh And just beautiful swimming hole. So grew up in Cincinnati, spent a lot of time, you know, lived in LA for a little bit, which I never knew about you. And then on a farm in rural central West Virginia, there's such a deep urban rural divide in our country right now. It's not new. It's been there, but it feels more, feels deeper. Um, Any insights having lived in both, which is probably rare these days, any insights on the urban rural divide? It's always been there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it's a, the culture's very different, Um, but what we are seeing politically I don't think is a surprise to anybody who's ever had the opportunity to live in both an urban center and a rural center. It's just that it's been exacerbated because of how we intake media and how we now engage in social media. Um, When I moved to West Virginia, I was, we'll talk politics here for a second since I kind of cracked that door. Um, I was raised as a, in, in an Ohio Democratic family. Um, when I moved to West Virginia, it's clear I was still a Democrat, but the Democrats in West Virginia were not the same as the Democrats in Ohio. Um, they were far more conservative. Um, and so, you know, I, I could that was for me kind of an enlightenment. The first time I saw the differences between rural and urban um, using a definition that I thought had singular meaning. I thought a Democrat was one thing. Yeah. Um, and starting to see the gradient, the variation along spectrum. Correct. Yeah. Um, which was interesting. And I think it's just expanded even more now. Um, but I think the parallels between urban poor and rural poor um, or the, are so similar um, and are underappreciated um, and under-resourced in terms of a networking and power center. What if, if we can make that connection? Well, I think that this is uh, the journal ML Martin Luther King's juniors journals show that was the next pivot, right? was to better connect rural, mostly white, not exclusively, but mostly white or with urban you know, people of color experiencing poverty. Think how powerful that connection could be. It, it's powerful, but I think it's also humanizing. Yeah. Um, we see if you're rural poor, you see the urban poor as the other. They're not like us. Um, and I think that adds to the division. So it would be a power center, but I also just think that it would strengthen our center as human beings um, and increase compassion, Yeah. Um, which is greatly needed. <laughs> but I, I think that you know, this kind of gets to what I'm looking forward, you know, one of the reasons why that is so hard is that the great leaders of rural efforts in underinvested communities and the great leaders of urban efforts in under underinvested communities are often working on ether. I mean, you're working multiple, you're wearing many hats, you're working well beyond your typical 40 hour work week. 
um, you're in the grind, not just to serve your population and your clients, but to keep the lights on and be able to make that next payroll, that you don't have the time to think outside of the box Mm. um, or to begin to connect those deeper threads um, because it's at the cost of what you're doing on a daily basis. Um, if you step away and begin to think at that bigger systems level. And um, I think that's where, you know, foundations should be stepping in and helping make that happen, not just on an urban and rural poor conversation like we're discussing now, but I think it's what's making what's happening in Appalachia successful now is that there has been some investment in bridging sectors crossing geopolitical divides rather than exacerbating them saying i'm only going to do west virginia i'm only going to do kentucky it's a start right it's starting it's starting and i think you know you more than anybody sees the the payoffs so what was the next chapter after braxton webster elk river days so yeah I, i you know leading a foundation in webster and braxton county I was struggling with the flow of capital and the size and scale of the challenge. Um, I was also really wrestling with the financial model of foundations, which is 5% of our assets on an annual basis go towards grant making um, to support our mission. And the other 95% are invested to support our perpetuity, (laughs) which to me really means your mission is perpetuity not service of something. <laughs> yeah. Um, that stays. And, 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 and it's a common thing to point out, but when I absorbed that and said, well, how are you investing your assets? Um, who are you investing in? And well, that's, you know, we're representing the Nicholas County Community Foundation and we're investing in Wall Street. How does that help our community? Um, I started getting really frustrated and started exploring alternative models. And that's when I discovered impact investing, um, which can be defined and has many definitions as the investment in businesses, funds, projects, or communities seeking not just financial returns, but also evaluating in that social or environmental returns as well. Um, And some impact investors are even willing to reduce their financial returns for outsized social or environmental returns. Um, because they have equal value to somebody, even though one is more easily monetized than the other. Um, And as I was investigating it, I found a foundation that was based in Charlottesville, Virginia, so just outside Appalachia, that happened to still have an Appalachia program area um, that was already doing impact investing. And so my family, nine plus years ago, packed up, left West Virginia, and moved to Charlottesville so that I could really understand all of the ways a foundation can use its corpus, its 100% of its dollars Mm -hmm. to achieve its impact. And you've been diligently chipping away. I I was at a meeting you called in Charleston, maybe ah, six or seven years ago now about impact investing in Appalachia and the, the learning and the effort and the patience you've put in to see more impact investing in Appalachia. I truly commend it, Stephanie. I, I really do. Well, thank you for um, tolerating the 
thunder from outside the region's crazy idea. That first meeting took place, and I only know this because I recently looked at looked at it, in September 2016. Um, and we brought together community development practitioners like yourself, CDFIs, um, funders who were interested in health, funders who were interested in economic development, as well as some of these national impact investors. Um, and for listeners, um, impact investing might sound like something new, and it still is new to a lot of people. But globally, there are more than $1 trillion now allocated for impact investments, according to a group called the Global Impact Investing Network. $1 trillion of people who are willing to consider environmental and social returns alongside financial returns. Um, and not surprisingly, um, those dollars don't readily flow into Appalachia. Um, they often end up on the coasts. And so that first conversation was, if we could attract these dollars, what would we do with it? You know, um, how how would that money need to be structured to be most impactful? Um, and it created a long learning journey um, and a lot of really unique relationships um, and ultimately led to the formation of Invest Appalachia. Well, congratulations. Uh, and. Um... Incredible work. I, I, we're coming close to time. It sort of flew by. This has been a great, uh, just a great conversation. I sent you more, off on the LA rabbinic school thing. And it, that's going to stay in. That's going to stay in. That's going to be new info for people that don't know about you. <laughs> uh, two more questions. One's my standard question that I usually close out with, but you mentioned Charlottesville. And and so if i am got my timeline right, you lived in Charlottesville for that horrific uh, episode with the with the white nationalist rally. Uh, what was it like to be in that community when that happened? That's a hard, yeah, question to answer. Um, it was among the most surreal experiences of my life. Um, I live less than a mile from where all of that happened. Mm. We were going to we we would go to the farmers market every Saturday. Um, and so we made an attempt to go to the farmer's market very early that Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. The rally was supposed to start at noon. And we went around 730. And at 730 in the morning, you saw armed militia lined up through the park carrying heavy artillery. Um, and you just could feel that something was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter in 10th grade now so she was in fifth fourth fifth fifth grade um and she asked as we were walking are these kkk are they white supremacists are they neo-nazis what are they um and i said i don't think they're all any one thing I think there's a lot of people from a lot of different groups. She's like, well, what what do I call them? But it was also, what does a fifth grader understand about the difference between a KKK member or a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist? Um, better yet, what do I understand about the differences between those groups? Um, and it's something that happened to Charlottesville, but it also kind of ripped the band-aid off of a lot of what 
a very liberal city had been sweeping under the rug for a very long time. Um, specifically, it's just deep racial inequities. Um, and the Jeffersonian history, as well as the influence of Jim Crow laws um, and the raising of, you know, in the 1960s and 70s of, you know, high functioning black communities within Charlottesville and um, that had just kind of been swept under the rug and ignored. Um, And I think it's something that the city is still struggling with. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, it's an unfortunate, but an appropriate segue. I mean, there's, there's so much that's so much good work happening in our region in our country in our world. And yet there's so much more to do. What, as my final question, what are some changes in Appalachia that you've observed in your work and, and career here that you're really happy about? And what are some changes that you wish you would have seen happen, but just haven't come to be? I would say I started to see things change during the Obama administration with power. Um, I referenced before kind of how grants can create competition and play into the scarcity mentality. Power really began to challenge communities to think big um, and look beyond their sector or their geographical boundaries um, to allow us to really teach and test collaboration. Um, And I see see that continuing to grow. We can look at Big Build Back Better now um, as another example of how that has grown. Um, And I think the capacity of the partners that were assembled in the Act Now Coalition to collaborate as efficiently and effectively as you all have done was groomed and tested through some of the power relationships. It was. That we wrote in our application that, that part of how we justified we had the capacity to handle this was yeah. we proved it during power. Um, and, and I see it now with ARC's Arise um, program, which is very similar, I think very has a very similar feel to it. Um, and so I think that ability to stop fighting to solve our problems project by project or community by community and look at things on a systems level or a markets level um, is exciting, empowering, and the direction that we need to go. I think that we still need more people to learn how to talk about capital and learn how to stack capital. Um, We've got to become more comfortable with those financial terms um, because it's going to let money flow more predictably um, and faster where it needs to go. If we can be clear, do you need a loan or a grant or what does equity look like and how do we get that back until we become conversant in that? Um, I think we're going to continue to kind of trip over ourselves. Um, all mine, the coasts where people huh? get coffee in the coast cities, people get coffee and talk about equity and I don't yeah. know, a bunch of I, think- I don't Fully have the vocabulary. Talking about money and sex just are not acceptable. Um, and I think our world would be a lot better if we got better at talking about both. Um, <laughs> Wise word. Um, but in particular in Appalachia. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I don't know how many new markets tax credits, those big $10 million projects uh, that have passed by my desk that all have that $1 million or $2 million gap. Um, I've sent you one. You sent me one, and a lot. It's 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 pretty common. And how do we creatively solve that gap? And then how do we tell the story so that 
the dozens of other projects that are also looking for that one mystery one million or two million dollar project can solve solve that gap. Um, so I think that's one of the things we need to do. Um, but probably the most exciting thing to me um, is the next generation leadership. Um, there are some amazing. 30-somethings and just on the beginning of 40-something who are stepping into leadership or have been in leadership positions um, for a decade now. And that, to me, is a ray of light um, and a tremendous opportunity that I just want to keep feeding. If I was in control of what I could do with grants, that leadership development, the cross-collaboration, um, the cross-pollination, even though they might not be doing housing, can they go and learn about a housing project so that they can understand how it may affect a healthcare delivery program? Um, I think is that cross-pollination of the next generation um, is important because you're all standing there um, and dreaming big and just getting it done. Well, You've uh, you've been a leader who's been getting good work done, and I really appreciate uh, appreciate all of it. And it's been so much fun to hear a little bit more of your story, Stephanie. And um, I look forward to continuing the conversation soon. Brandon, thank you, and keep up the amazing work. It's been a pleasure. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development in the hills and hollers of West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for more information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn by searching Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.